Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Good morning, everybody. Who was really in that manger? You know, many people are suspicious of the feel-good feelings of Christmas. They want to deal with the facts, with the data, with the logic. And um, I don't want your Christmas to be built on something flimsy or a flimsy foundation uh, of wishful thinking when there is so much more than that that you can build your Christmas around. And that's what I want to look at today. Before we get going, I want to thank you for uh, just a couple of things, tell you about a couple of things. One of them is thank you for giving to the celebration offering. Uh, I mentioned last week we've helped a church in India. Uh, We're also helping in disaster relief with that uh, to uh, those who've been hit by the uh, tornadoes in Kentucky and surrounding areas. And uh, there's some churches uh, that we would love to help out with that. So thank you for giving to the celebration offering. That's making that possible. Just a lot of churches that are trying to meet needs in their community and make church happen in these, in these days. So much happening. Our Christmas Eve services this week. Hope you'll claim a spot for one of those. Also, something that's kind of sprung up here over the last couple of weeks is uh, this Tuesday, Pastor Patrick is going to be praying at the community prayer night uh, that's happening on Main Street in Belton near the DMV. Uh, there's going to be some other churches and pastors, things happening. If you'd like to uh, join him in praying for that prayer night, 7 p.m. Tuesday night, you are invited to that. So much good stuff happening. Uh, I gave you a Christmas gift this weekend. Maybe you got it on your way in. If you didn't, I hope you get one on your way out. It's a small book called The Case for Christmas. A journalist investigates the identity of the child in the manger. It's by a guy by the name of Lee Strobel, who was was an atheist, journalist, legal editor, who began investigating the claims of Christ and came to a verdict. There's also a great film about his journey uh, through that process called The Case for Christ, which I would highly recommend. Because the accounts of Christ, what you find is they're not shaky. We're not on shaky ground. In fact, they can be investigated. We can take a cue from the famous Christmas story of all time in Luke's gospel, where two millennia ago, the angels appeared to the shepherds in the field and announced that the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord had been born in Bethlehem. It's in Luke 2, verse 15. It says, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Notice how the shepherds reacted to this incredible experience. They've just had this announcement from the angels. They did not automatically reject it as a hoax. They didn't reject it as a hallucination, and they didn't automatically uh, just accept it and go about their business. Instead, what did they do? They decided to go and check it out. They decided to go and investigate. They decided to go get to the bottom of it. So they ran to Bethlehem to look at the facts. And I want us this 
Christmas here to take a cue from those shepherds and get to the bottom of the most crucial issue in history. Who was really in that manger that first Christmas morning? Who was really in that manger? And the first of the most crucial issues of Christmas is this. If you're taking notes, did Jesus claim that he is God? And as you look at the historical records of the Gospels, from the first Gospel written, which is the Gospel of Mark, to the last Gospel written, the Gospel of John, Jesus, either in direct manner or indirect manner, implicitly and explicitly made transcendent, messianic, and divine claims about himself. He claimed he was the Son of God. In fact, in John 10, 30, he comes right out and says, I and the Father are one. And this word one here uh, is not saying that I and the Father are the same person. He's saying I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. And how did his audience, who he's speaking to, how did they respond and understand what he was saying? Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They picked up stones to kill him because they said, uh, you're just a man and you're claiming to be God. No question about it, he made the claim that he is God incarnate. British theologian John Stott put it this way. He said, Jesus made it clear by word and deed that to know him was to know God. To see him was to see God. To believe him was to believe God. To receive him was to receive God. To reject him was to reject God. And to honor him was to honor God. So did Jesus claim to be God? Yes. But then that leads to the second crucial question of Christmas. And that is, did Jesus show that he is God? In other words, did he prove it? Because after all, anybody could claim to be God. Uh, did Jesus back up that claim? I could claim to be God, but it's a whole other thing to prove it, to show it, to back it up. Did he do anything to establish that he wasn't just making an assertion, but he was working in reality? I want to look at, at four clear credentials of his proof that he, he is God. And first, if you're taking notes, is this, his miracles. Jesus himself knew that the miracles would be a strong confirmation of his identity, his deity, his divinity. In fact, hundreds of years before Jesus was born on that Christmas morning, Isaiah said that the miracles would be one way that the Messiah would be authenticated to others. And Jesus performed many miraculous feats in broad daylight, in front of skeptics. He demonstrated power over nature by turning water into wine. He healed the blind. He healed those with leprosy. He brought Lazarus back to life. The issue of his miracles is, in fact, the very next thing he brings up in John 10. He says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. 
So he's saying, don't just take my word for it. If you see the works, you'll know. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Jesus knew that miracles would be a strong confirmation of his identity, of his divinity. In fact, uh, hundreds of years before Jesus was born on that Christmas morning, uh, Isaiah uh, said that these miracles would point to him and they would show the way to the Messiah. In fact, Jesus' opponents even admitted that he performed miracles. They just got mad at him that he would do, they would do them sometimes on the Sabbath. And that's why they were upset. So they would concede that he's doing miracles. They just didn't like when he was doing them. That's good evidence that he really did them. Second credential that we see, we see his miracles and we see his character. Have you noticed so often that the closer we get to people, the more we see their flaws I remember as a teenager, there was this musician, artist that I really looked up to. I loved his music, his message, his concerts. Uh, then I was at a, at a worship conference, which was a week-long event with speakers and musicians, and I got to spend some time with him. And I got to sit next, sit next to him for a, a session, and then it, we ate a meal together and hung out. And over those couple of hours, I would realize He's just another guy. He's got all the same flaws and quirks and problems and issues as everybody else here. And he did not lose my respect, and I still look up to him. But it's just a lesson that inevitably, the more time you spend with someone, the more you see their shortcomings, their flaws, the more you see their humanity. And yet, amazingly, the exact opposite happened to those who hung out with Jesus and those who were around Jesus. I mean, the closer they got to him, the more they noticed his divinity. The more they would say, this guy is perfect. They marveled at his moral perfection. For instance, nobody was closer to Jesus during his three-year ministry than Peter and John. They saw him up close and personal, 24-7. And so how did they assess his character? Well, John wrote in 1 John 3, 5, in him, in Jesus, is no sin. And Peter said this in 1 Peter 2, 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So the incredible character, the moral uh, perfection noticed by those close to Jesus is another credential backing up his claim to be the son of God. And Peter, this is in quotes here because Peter is quoting prophecy, Old Testament prophecy that said this would be true of the Messiah. What scripture would say would be true about him, Peter says is absolutely true about him. In fact, that's the next credential is his fulfillment of prophecy, his miracles, his character, and his fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament contains dozens of ancient predictions about the coming of the Messiah, the Savior, God himself. And when you piece together these ancient predictions, they kind of create a totally unique fingerprint or thumbprint uh, 
And the Bible says whoever fits this fingerprint is truly the Messiah, the Savior of Israel and the world. That's how you can authenticate the real Messiah. And of course, of all human beings who've ever lived on planet Earth, only Jesus has been able to fulfill and fit this prophetic fingerprint. For instance, Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before the first Christmas, he wrote a cluster of messianic predictions. He said the child would be born of a virgin, that he would be called mighty God. What other person in history has been called mighty God by billions of people? That he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The prophecies foretold the Messiah would be from the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Judah, the house of David, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he'd be heralded by the Lord's messenger, that he would cleanse the temple, that he'd be uh, killed at a specific time in history, that he'd be rejected by the Jews, that he'd have his hands and feet pierced. That was predicted hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented, that he would be raised from the dead, that he would sit down at the right hand of God the Father. In fact, in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it contains 12 prophetic aspects of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, all of which were fulfilled on Easter. How do you just explain all those prophecies away? Uh, Lee Strobel talks about thinking, well, maybe Jesus isn't the only person who's fit this thumbprint throughout history. Uh, maybe lots of people throughout history have fulfilled these prophecies, but just Jesus had a better public relations firm, and so he's remembered, and everybody else is forgotten. But then he met a mathematician by the name of Dr. Peter Stoner, who has a book called Science Speaks, and he did something interesting. He realized that many of these ancient prophecies could actually be quantified. In other words, if the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, so here would be one example of quantifying these prophecies. If the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, you can quantify how many people in history have been born in Bethlehem. So we know what the odds are of any human being being born in Bethlehem. So he got together 600 students, graduate students, undergraduate students in mathematics, and they ran conservative numbers concerning what are the odds that any human being throughout history could fulfill these ancient prophecies and they determined that the chance of any human being throughout history fulfilling 48 of these prophecies would be one chance in a trillion 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 I mean how do you even understand that number, the same odds of any human being being uh, in history that could fulfill these 48 ancient prophecies. And can I tell you what? Jesus did it. Jesus did it. One physicist put it this way. He said, when you get to numbers that large, scientists have a term that they use to talk about what the chances of anyone uh, fulfilling that. They said, in this case, the scientific term we would use is ain't gonna happen. <laughs> it's just not. And yet Jesus did it. Jesus fulfilled it. And Jesus said, I came to fulfill the prophecies. And so, in fact, he said, uh, put me to the test. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, 
and the Psalms where you find all these predictions about him. And Jesus said, put me under the microscope. Look at it. See it's all fulfilled. And they were fulfilled only in him. In fact, get this, there are specific prophecies that had to be fulfilled uh, before a certain time, before the destruction of the second Jewish temple, which happened in, the, happened in the year A.D. 70. Now, Jesus was put to death in uh, 30, 33 A.D. In A.D. 70, the second Jewish temple is destroyed. And there were specific prophecies that had to be fulfilled before that temple was destroyed. For instance, the final atonement for sin had to be made. There had to be a divine visit to the temple. And Jesus accomplished both of those things. Now, why is that so significant? It's significant because either Jesus is the Messiah or there will never be a Messiah. Because nobody can fulfill these prophecies uh, today that had to be fulfilled 2,000 years ago. So it's Jesus or nobody in terms of the Messiah. The fulfillment of prophecy is a powerful authentication of the claim of Jesus being the Son of God. But there's one more. We have miracles, character, prophecy, and finally, his resurrection is another credential. Jesus did not just claim to be the Son of God. He backed up that claim by returning from the dead. We know that Jesus was dead after being crucified because not only do we have the New Testament uh, right there from the first century, we have five ancient sources outside the Bible even confirming his death. Even the Journal of the American Medical Association, it's a secular, scientific, peer-reviewed medical journal, carried an investigation into the death of Jesus, and their conclusion was clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. They pierced his side while he was on the cross, one of the final things. They said he was dead even before that happened. Secondly, we have the report of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, including named eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses that had been dated back by scholars uh, to within months of the death of Jesus. It's far too quick to write off as legend. And we have an empty tomb. How, how do we know the tomb was empty? Because even the enemies of Jesus admitted it was empty. Everybody can see that the tomb was empty. And then finally, we have eyewitnesses. We have nine sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Christ after he was dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. How strong is the evidence? There was an attorney who's in the Guinness Book of World Records is the greatest attorney in the world. Uh, He'd won more murder cases than any lawyer in history. So this is a guy who really understands what evidence is. He's got to be able to take a look at an airtight case, see what the loopholes are, 
are in it. You must be able to examine the evidence, conclude whether it's persuasive or unpersuasive. All that's true of Sir Lionel Luke, who, who was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth, became a member of the Supreme Court of his land, and he was skeptical of the resurrection of Jesus. Until somebody said to him one day, Sir Lionel, you're the greatest lawyer in the world. Why don't you take your monumental legal skills and apply it to the historical record of the resurrection and come to an informed decision about whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead? And so he did. He spent two years investigating the historical evidence concerning the resurrection of Jesus. And I'll recite to you one sentence that he wrote that summarized his conclusion. He said, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. So did the baby in the manger grow up to claim that he was the son of God? He clearly did. But he didn't just claim it. He didn't just say it. He backed up that claim in four compelling ways by performing supernatural miracles in front of skeptics who conceded that he did it by living a morally perfect life, by being the only one in history to fulfill this unique thumbprint of ancient prophecies and ultimately dying on the cross but rising from the dead, conquering death himself. The baby in the manger is the divine, miracle-working, grace-offering, resurrected, one and only Son of God. And friend, I hope this encourages you this Christmas season. Is Christmas just wishful thinking? No, it's not. There is a strong foundation of historical evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So why did he do it? Why did he do it? What's the purpose of Christmas? When the infinite became finite, when the eternal became time-bound, what was the purpose? Of course, we know the ultimate purpose of Christmas is Easter, that Jesus came to die as our substitute, to pay for all of our sins so that He can offer forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of His grace. That's the ultimate purpose of heaven. And at Christmas, God became a human being. He became God with us. And listen, because He lived as one of us, we can relate to Him, have commonality with Him that we otherwise would not have. We can relate to Him as one of us, as someone who walked with us, as someone who knew hunger and thirst and exhaustion and pain, someone who knew what it was like to mourn and to weep, someone who knew what it was like to have joy and to have friendship. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We're living in difficult times, but Jesus this Christmas says, I have come so you can live without fear. I have come so that you can have eternal life. 
Jesus this Christmas season is saying what he said in John 3.16. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Would you pray with me, please? If you want to take a step of trusting in Jesus today, I'm not going to ask you to do anything in this moment other than pray in your heart to God. God will hear you. Just say, Lord Jesus, as best as I can, I put my trust in you. As much as I know how, I believe that you are the unique Son of God who came into the world on a rescue mission for me. Please forgive me of all my wrongdoing that separates me from God in repentance and in faith right now. I walk through the open door into your kingdom forever. Thank you for dying on the cross to pay the penalty that I deserved for the sins that I've committed. God, right now I receive your gifts through a spirit of repentance and faith. Help me to grow in my relationship with you in this world. God, help me manifest uh, your qualities of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God, let those increase in my life as I get to know you better. God, thank you for ultimately flinging open the door of heaven so that we can spend eternity together. Now, Father, thank you for those who have taken those step, taken that step. We know from Luke 15, a celebration breaks out in heaven whenever a sinner repents and receives forgiveness through your Son. So we celebrate those who have taken that step today. We pray for those who are still on that journey, that someday we'll be able to celebrate their rebirth as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.